Our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this edition are Conquer Cancer Foundation, Easter Seals, Global Giving Foundation. To find out more about these and other BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Now, this is part two of a two-part episode. If you didn't hear part one, which we aired last week, I encourage you to go back and hear Mari talk about her life and what led her to a career in philanthropy and the work that she founded and led for many years with Global Giving. Mari, welcome to part two. Thank you for having me, Art. It's an honor to be here. Mari, so much you've done in your life, but you've now taken on some new responsibility, um, relocating with your family to Jacksonville about four years ago. And I remember when I heard you took that job, I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. I guess she wants to work on the grantmaker side after having brought money together to support organizations all these years. And I didn't know a whole lot about the foundation. I was really going to call it a fund. And it really wasn't until we were together recently at a Feedback Labs event that you described the way this organization is structured. I I would love for you to sort of (laughs) have our listeners hear exactly how this fund is established and what it's set up to do. And then we can get into how you think your leadership will be able to impact maybe some shifts in how it operates or in the results that it can achieve so that um, we can all maybe find a way to join you in that. Sure. The Jesse Ball DuPont Fund was set up by Jesse Ball DuPont, the third wife of Alfred I. DuPont. DuPont of Wilmington, Delaware, chemicals, gunpowder, that DuPont. He obviously was part of that business, but eventually sort of took off on his own. And he and his third wife settled in Jacksonville, Florida, which was at that time the southernmost, you know, terminus of the railroad. And It was a place where a lot of people from the North ended up settling. 
not just to sort of be the snowbirds that we sort of associate with Florida today, but to, it was sort of the wild South. Mm -hmm. It was a business opportunity. There was real estate, there was lumber, there was citrus growing. All of these things were available in Florida. So he and Jesse, and we're talking when, what time, what timing are we talking about? Early 20th century. He and Jesse and Jesse's brother, Ed Ball, mm-hmm. moved to Florida, built up the St. Joe Paper Company out in the Gulf Coast. At one point, I think owned more land in Northeast Florida than any other family because you need forests to feed the lumber mills mm-hmm. for the paper company. and. Then he died in the mid-20th century. She lived until the 1970s. His estate went towards a much larger foundation called the Alfred I. Testamentary Trust that funds Nemours, the children's hospital, Mm -hmm. famous specialty care both in Delaware and in Florida. Mm -hmm. Her money came to us. And in her will, Jesse specified that we could give to organizations that she had given to between the years of 1960 and 1965. So some 300 plus organizations, not all in Jacksonville, not all in Florida, Virginia, and Delaware, but spanning, you know, sort of a range of very small rural churches to Yale University and everything in between. And then she also said, and if you don't want to give to those organizations, you may give to for the temporary relief of people in need in the states of Delaware, Virginia, and Florida. I think initially when she died and her brother was a trustee and all that, they said, we'll just keep writing checks to the organizations Jesse wrote checks to, that list. Mm -hmm. And so when they would come to the foundation for funding, they'd say, okay, sounds reasonable or doesn't sound reasonable and wrote a check or didn't write a check. And over the years, I think the fund work, they had in the meantime forgotten about this other clause that said you can give for the temporary relief of people in need. They just sort of focused on the 300 plus organizations. Then at some point, you know, my predecessor said, you know, there is this clause in the will. We really ought to explore it and see if we can do more than just give money to the organizations on the list. And over time, of course, this list is like some organizations are going out of business. You reference the fact that new ones come in, but also, you know, certain ones go out of business. Mm -hmm. So this list is getting smaller and the trustees are like, well, what are we going to do when the trust, you you know, when the list gets really small. So the possibility of using that other clause in the will was explored was agreed to. At the same time, the trustees also expanded the governance of the board. It used to be Ed Ball, Mrs. DuPont's secretary, corporate trustee, and someone nominated by the Episcopal Diocese of Florida. And now we have a board of seven, still includes the diocesan representative and the corporate trustee, but we have five independent trustees who you know, have helped 
this organization become what it is today. And when I came, I looked at the will, I looked at the pattern of giving that had been, that the fund had been engaged in. And I said, look, you know, let's give ourselves some targets. Let's say we are trying to make the communities that Jesse loved better. And that's clearly in the will. You know, she specifies that she cares about these three states and there are concentrations in, in the, in that list of hers. And she, so she loved certain places. She loved certain institutions. We will seek to make them as inclusive as possible. And this is where we part ways with Mrs. DuPont's intent because at, in her time, she, she did give to African-American and white organizations alike. She gave to HBCUs, Bethune-Cookman, Edward Waters. Uh, she gave to you know nonprofits that were led by African-Americans. But she was also very adamant about opposing integration of schools, mm-hmm. opposing integration of schools both in the K-12 but also in higher ed. She was a trustee of some of these colleges, like Washington and Lee, Sewanee. Actually, I don't think she was a trustee of Sewanee, but her one of her friends, the, the Episcopal Bishop of Florida, was a trustee of Sewanee. Holland's College, all universities that at different points in time basically opposed integration, notwithstanding Brown versus Board of Education. And so we have explicitly said you can't make great communities or great institution without fully integrating the diverse talent that exists in those communities and institutions. And you will get the best outcomes possible when you have created a sense of belonging for everyone. So doubling down on donor intent in some respects and being very careful about distancing ourselves from the the views that she had. Now, what's kind of cool is that as we lean into this equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, dimension, the, org- the very organizations that Mrs. DuPont supported, which at the time were associated with the lost cause or, you know, were opposed to integration. They're all rethinking their legacies and we can be part of that recasting of, you know, what's it mean to be the university of the South today? What is it going to be a force for? And so all of these organizations are rethinking their assumptions, and we can be part of that change. So that's a pretty exciting place to be. Yeah. Well, and you're in Florida at a very interesting time. On this show, I've talked at length about the swinging pendulum that we see on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And it's not unlike the pendulum that we've seen at various spikes in civil rights activities in past eras. You know, 10 things good happen and here comes the pendulum and it's gonna knock down those 10 things maybe to about three or two, you know, before it's all done. And 
you know, in particular in Florida, we're seeing some of that concern, the swinging pendulum right now. I'm wondering how that is affecting some of the conversations that you're having at the fund and with some of the fund's grantees. How is that impacting what you're able to do, if, if, if at all? It is, in some respects, impacting some of our grantees more than others, right? So it, one of our grantees is the University of Florida. As a public institution, it is much, much more subject to the political swings that you are talking about. Mm -hmm. And then there are nonprofits that are very active in upholding the rights of refugees. Catholic Charities is another organization on the list. They are doing everything they can to support you know, refugees that are coming to this country. Mm -hmm. And so it, it affects our grantees in very different ways. We ourselves can't take positions on legislation or candidates, never have been able to. So in, you know, sort of who's, who's in the office is sort of neither here nor there. And as long as we are, you know, adhering to the relevant regulations of tax exempt organizations and private foundations, and we are abiding by the terms as Mrs. DuPont's will, we are left alone in many ways, right? To do what we think is best. So we can support the work that we think is most likely to create communities of belonging mm. and, you know, live to fight another day, right? It's yeah. the same thing that I was saying about startups. You got to like, be around in the long term if you want to make change. Yeah. What are some of the successes that you're seeing so far? Some of the successes we're seeing so far are, in fact, it, again, it's not it's no credit to us, but we are supporting organizations like formal former segregationist academies set up in Virginia. There's a f school called the Fuqua School. Prince Edward County of Virginia school was set up, private school was set up with Mrs. DuPont's money at a time when the public schools were closed down for nine years rather than integrate. Wow. So if you were an African-American child in that county, you had to leave the county to get an education. That school is thinking deeply about that past and we are matching their funds to set up scholarships for African-American students to attend the school. You know, for us, it's, it's an act of repair given the history of our or Mrs. DuPont's giving. We're participating in racial reconciliation discussions with the University of the South. Again, another institution that was deeply set in its ways, promoting not just segregated education, but actual, you know, it was set up so that the sons and daughters of the Confederacy wouldn't have to go north to get educated, right? Yeah. It too is undergoing a huge reckoning about what does it mean to be the University of the South today? So when we can support those institutions, it's, it's amazing. Here in Jacksonville, we are trying to work with the city to actively 
bring forward the incredible history that this town has. It is occasionally called the Harlem of the South and our local people want to say, no, Jacksonville, Harlem is the Jacksonville of the North because all the you know, people you associate with the Harlem Renaissance, Zora Neale Hurston, Augusta Savage, A. Philip Randolph, yeah. James Weldon Johnson, John Rosamond Johnson, all came from Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. And so we have this incredibly rich history, but because the town of La Villa, which is where they were all living, got raised in the 1990s in the name of urban renewal, and I-95 went through it, the, the usual story of some, some of these urban African-American neighborhoods. If we can bring that back to life, I think we can sort of bring back pride in Jacksonville in having had those people who were so incredibly creative and accomplished coming from this city, which, you know, no one really associates with a, the, the depth and interest of African-American history. I mean, you think Atlanta, you think even Nashville, you think New Orleans. Well, Jacksonville had a history like that. We just don't think about it that way. So we as the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund are working with the city to try and recreate that sense to to control the narrative about who we are. You know, I, I had a chance to uh, listen in and see the story of how Sears Roebuck was actually connected to Jacksonville and and the work, the amazing work that the the executive there did to build schools. You talk about that for a minute. Yeah, the Rosenwald schools. Yeah, the Rosenwald. So Rosenwald turned his considerable fortune to the cause of educating African-American students. And there are Rosenwald schools all over the South. And you talk to many African-Americans, they will say, oh yeah, my, you know, grand dad, my great granddad, he went to a Rosenwald school and that's why we are where we are today. And it really shows the power of individual philanthropy when someone really identifies a clear need and steps boldly into it, right? Individuals can do that sometimes, whereas institutions can't. So the Rosenwald schools are just an incredible way of resurrecting that rich history. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting comparative, I guess, that I like to make between a gentleman by the name of Pete Cadence, who made a ton of money selling cannabis legally. Pete was one of my guests on the show, so you should definitely check his show out. But okay, Pete made all this money and he decided, you know, I'm from Ohio, went to a really good school. And as a result, went to a great college. I think he went to Bucknell, got a great education and was able to launch businesses and make a whole lot of money selling something that many African-Americans are festering in prison because of selling illegally. And he felt that his road was so much easier because 
he had assets and advantages that allowed him to do it legally while they didn't. Mm-hmm. And he wants to try to fix that. So his his Rosenwald, which is essentially, I want to raise a whole bunch of money and use my own too, to enable kids from many neighborhoods in their schools. Everyone who goes to these schools and graduates can go to college free. And not only them. Wow. Yeah, not only them, um, but one of their parents too, because he thinks it's generational. So would love for you and, and Pete to connect. I think you'll find it really interesting because he is, in my opinion, a modern day Rosenwald. That is that is a great story. I would love to. Yeah. I'll, I'll go and find that podcast. Yeah. All right. So great work at the foundation. I can't wait to see what you do in the next three or four years or so there with with all of this momentum that you're now building for the things that really matter, certainly to me and I'm sure a lot of other people. But let's talk about feedback. So this is another another area that you took a great interest in. And it's been like 10 years ago. Here we go, right? Here we go back again. Let's, we got this idea. Maybe in 10 years or so, people might actually pay attention to it, but we're going to just kind of stick with this thing. <laughs> and so this now notion that somehow people who are getting served or who are in any way connected to an organization should be able to give the organization feedback so that the organization could improve its work is a real thing now. <laughs> you know, it started with you and Dennis and maybe a few others 10 years ago. And here we are. So what's happening with feedback and how did you, what, what really led you to create that? I, I imagine it's an offshoot of your thinking at Global Giving at the time, but tell me what's the story. It, it is, it is definitely an offshoot of that. And I, at the time when Feedback Labs was launched, was running Global Giving. So Dennis did the heavy lifting on on Feedback Labs. But it is, again, you know, sort of one click down from local leaders have insight into solutions that funders may not have. Go one click down, and it's like the people who experience the challenges that nonprofits are trying to solve frequently have a lot more insight into how those solutions work. So listen to them, right? And it's hard for us to listen to them because they, if we were selling toothpaste, we would know if our toothpaste wasn't selling. Right. People would stop buying it and go buy your competitor's toothpaste. When you don't get that signal because you're giving your toothpaste away for free, you know, they could pick up the toothpaste, put it in their mouth and go, ugh, and throw it away. And you wouldn't know that they were throwing it away. So you need to proactively go and ask, how's, how's that toothpaste working for you? Do you like how it tastes? Can you make your kids brush their teeth? If you can't, why not? You know, is it something about the toothpaste? I, it's, I'm making it sound perhaps a little bit more trivial than it ought, but yeah. they, these are broken loops. They work in the for-profit context easily and naturally so that we almost don't think about it anymore. But in the nonprofit world, you have to think about it consciously. And there are ways of asking for feedback because like long survey instruments are not the way to go. 
people are surveyed to death in the social sector, you need to find different ways of getting their input in ways that make sense to them. So that's why Feedback Labs is doing such amazing work. They, they have tools that we all need. Why is it that we don't seek this in the nonprofit sector naturally? I know you mentioned that there's an, there's an economic need in the business case, right? Yeah. You know, you have to know if your customers are buying your products or not, and you're going to know right away because people are going to tell you. But they won't necessarily tell you in a nonprofit setting. But why isn't that organizations don't naturally seek this? Because it's logical, right? You want to know if you're if it's having a desired effect. Yeah. I think part of it is we as funders don't always fund that work. We get into the business of sort of saying, well, you can spend money on this and that, but not anything else. Yeah. And if funders aren't thinking that you need to listen to your customers, well, then they don't pay you to talk to your customers. So part of it, I think the, the blame should be laid squarely at the funders. The other is that it's really difficult to deliver some of these services, right? And so organizations working on a shoestring are like barely getting the, the services out the door. And, you know, they're like, the last thing I need to do is ask if this is working. Not because they don't want to, but they just don't have the bandwidth to do it. And it's difficult enough to try and make design the intervention in such a way that you think it's going to make a chance. On the other hand, if you don't do it, you kind of can get caught in this trap of, well, we did this and we got to report back to the funders and the funders are not going to like good, bad news. Like it didn't work. So now we're like locked into saying, we think it's going quite well. Improvements can be made fund us for another year. And so you're kind of caught in this like half truth thing where you're saying it's okay, but you don't really want to know because what if it turns out to be just not the case, then you would have been, you know, you would have been lying. So it's, I, I think we need to one, make it okay to go back to funders with, well, that didn't work. Two funders need to deliberately ask, hey, make sure you include enough in your ask that you can check it out with the actual customers. And three, I think we have to, I think sometimes we think we're doing good and we conflate that with we are doing good work. So the good gets conflated with good work. And they're actually two separate things. Well, look, Mari, I, I don't have enough time to cover the full story of your life here like I'd like to. But I think we've given people a pretty good glimpse into you and, and the work that you're doing and some, and some places they can go and take a deeper look. For one thing, definitely check out the work going on at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. And there's a website you can go to to find out about that. And I especially encourage anyone thinking about going into philanthropy to not just assume that you come into this organization and you're able to 
make all of these wonderful grants <laughs> to things that you have an interest in. There can be, in many cases, you know, requirements and limitations on what you're able to do. And you have to think creatively about how to get around that to, to create the most good. Secondly, we talked about the importance of having the tenacity to see an issue through. And the early days can be quite challenging for anyone starting a nonprofit. And if it could be challenging for you, believe me, it's going to be challenging for, <laughs> for a lot of people. And so go into it with your eyes open and take the long view on what it's going to take for your organization to one day achieve the objectives that you have in mind and pray for that luck that you're going to need also along the way to get to that success. And then lastly, this is something that we can use in our own lives too. How am I doing? We should never stop asking that question and ask it from people who we're trying to serve. You know, I heard in a sermon yesterday, the key takeaway from me was help them anyway, help them anyway. And I know that for many of us, sometimes giving and serving can seem to be uh, uh, something that we say no good deed goes unpunished. And yet that's what we're here to do, I believe, Mari. I think we're here to help them anyway. And we should never give up on doing it in a way that operates in their best interest. So I would add that. And that's what the whole feedback conversation is about. Let's do it in a way that delivers the most for them. And there's a lot in that to think about, but certainly asking people, you know, what do you need? How can I be helpful? Should be part of that calculus. So Mara, you've given us a lot today. And I am and not only that, your your personal story, too, of how you came to the sector. I always ask that because there's probably some brilliant young person out there right now who's thinking, do I get into the nonprofit sector? And they may have heard something in your story that says, you know, I see myself in her. So I think it's so nice that you've been willing to share your personal story. Not everybody's willing to do it. Um, <laughs> not everyone's oriented that way. It took me a long time before I began talking about my personal story because I always felt like yeah, it's, it's not really relevant to what I'm doing now, but it is. It is relevant because there are people who will see themselves in what you've done and might decide to emulate it. So, so thank you for that. I always, uh, you know, we mentor people. I'm sure you do too. And, you know, people always ask you, um, so how do I get to success? How did you do it? And we automatically say, well, I went to school, then I got a job, then I did this. That's not what, what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, everybody goes to school, but not everybody's is, is successful. There are things that happen in our lives that become pivotal, right? That, that create this path for us to success. And so I think you've given us a glimpse into that for you as you talked about your experience at the World Bank and your, your Russian history education that sort of said to you, I've got to do something else <laughs> because there is no Soviet Union anymore. And I think it's these kinds of things that people 
need to wait and appreciate and see in their own lives and let that, that let their lives be shifted by that are so important. So anyway, just thank you again for doing this and continued success in everything you're doing. Well, and to all our listeners, let me just say this. We do this every week. And I hope if you're listening for the first time, because you were so interested in hearing Mari's presentation, that you'll subscribe to the show. And you can do that on any of the major podcast platforms. Just go to the link and hit like, and you'll be getting all of the shows that come out in the future. And we've done more than 130 of these over the last two and a half years. So um, there's so many interesting stories of people I'm sure you'd like to hear from. Please do check them out and subscribe. When you subscribe, we don't have a big marketing budget. So by subscribing, what you do is give the algorithms a chance for us to get the show out a little bit further so more people can find out about it. And if you want to support the show financially, that's great, too. You can make a donation at give.org, give.org, and we will certainly put that money to good use. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.